Hello, and welcome to the michaelcrane.live podcast. The podcast is about entrepreneurship and tips for staying highly motivated to make a positive change in your life. Keep listening and follow the podcast to stay connected with the community at michaelcrane.live. So get comfy and enjoy today's conversation. In times of a pandemic or a crisis, where do you go or who do you turn to? This is a huge topic and one you cannot take a chance with. That is if you don't want to lose your shirt or your business. On today's show, I'm delighted to have with me Anne Wright, one of the co-founders at Rough House Media based in Richmond, London. Rough House was founded in 1998 by a group of BBC journalists whose varied careers have spanned TV, radio and newspaper. They say if you want to go far, Anne, go with a team. And I can see the team you have at Rough House Media has a breadth of skill and experience. And I also recognise some of them by tuning in to the evening news. It very much looks like you love what you do. So how did you start out in your career as a print journalist and then as a TV producer working on some high profile and prestigious BBC programmes? Welcome, Anne. Uh, Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, so I started uh, as a print journalist on my, or not my local paper, but a regional evening paper, um, and then moved through the various levels of print. So I was a specialist health journalist for a while, working for specialist papers, and then I went and worked on a national newspaper. And I won't name it, but it wasn't a happy experience. Um, So I left fairly swiftly, deciding it wasn't the right place for me and almost immediately walked into a job at the BBC, um, working on the local news programme in London. And I was there for several years. Then I progressed out of local news and out of news completely into working on documentaries, including investigative consumer documentaries where we uncovered rogues. Um, And then I worked in the BBC's live events department for several years, and that meant covering events such as Kate and William's wedding and Nelson Mandela's funeral and um, Children in Need and various, you know, quite well-known high-profile programmes. But then I had a son and things changed and I always knew that I couldn't, couldn't do my job as well as I would wanted to do with with a child it's just not they're not particularly compatible careers though people do do it um and so I I was offered redundancy at the same time and I took redundancy and about I don't know 10 years before my husband and I had set up a rough house as a sideline really and so the decision was that I would focus full-time on running rough house um and that's what I've done since nine since 2008 so going back to your journalism career, what got actually got you into journalism? Because it's a very specific industry. And I think people either love TV, love journalism, 
and they've and it's one of those industries that I think the passion comes first. So what came first for you? I think, well, so I worked on my student newspaper. My dear friend Dominic got me into working on the student newspaper and um, he said, yeah, I think you might enjoy this. So I had a go and I did a couple of not very, you know, I don't know, I did a story about another friend who'd mooned at the police and things like that, I know, silly stories. And then I did a story which was... Um, about uh, the, the they had a rector where I was at university they had a rector who kind of looked after the students interests and he was elected by the students and there was a rectoral election and I covered that and I just thought this is what I want to do I loved it and partly it's because I have a curious mind and I want or maybe it's a nosy mind but I want to find out about things and I also had a kind of quite pious want to make the world better type of um, type of view and so I was determined that that was what I was going to do and I think you're right actually the love comes first because certainly with journalism it's a really tough career to get into there's not many jobs I think there's even fewer jobs now than there was when I was when I was starting out you know it's very difficult because lots of local local newspapers have closed down and so I you know I, I did work experience and one of the places I was offered work experience offered me a job or offered me to offer to send me on their training course and a job so that's that was um, that was my career mapped out, really. Perfect. But when I, I guess you're saying that you started writing articles for the local uh, university university. Yes, for our university for the student newspaper. Yes, yeah. So what was your thought process when writing those articles? You mentioned the uh, streaker, did you? <laughs> the mooner. Yes. The mooner. Okay, <laughs> in a better way of putting it. So what's the thought process about writing about a mooner for the local university rag? I don't think there is any, when you're writing that kind of story, I don't think there's any kind of, any kind of thought process at all. And I had no idea what I was doing. You know, I'm sure um, Dominic would say the same. You know, we didn't know what we were doing. We did our best. We were very proud of our efforts. But if I look back at them now, I think, oh my God, that was dreadfully written. You know, it, you know, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. So you just wrote what you were fine. You know, you, you found out what was going on and then you wrote, basically, you wrote the story. It's a very interesting point you make because in what I'm doing right now is done is better than perfect. And even Steve Jobs, if he got the perfect Apple iPhone all those years ago, he wouldn't have launched the first Apple iPhone. So I can therefore vouch that done is always better than perfect. So when you learned from that process, what was the learning that you took away from it? Oh, goodness me, that that takes us into a whole writing course, actually. Um, but, I, I, you know, not necessarily from student newspapers. I just had a lot of fun, really, and realised that's what I wanted to do. But then I went to journalism college and, you know, you learn how to write and you learn how you learn how to investigate and you learn how to write you know, newspaper writing, which is different to other kinds of writing. Um, you know, you look at something that might, somebody might write a white paper and it's completely different to a newspaper article. Newspaper articles tend to be very, very direct, should be very direct and clear and easy for people to absorb and understand. And that's, that's what I learned when I was at journalism college. Um, and then obviously, you know, went to the local paper and got lots of experience dealing with, you know, 
crime and deprivation and local council stories and going to court and all those kind of things that you do when you're on local papers. So when you was writing for the new local newspaper, how could you gauge how many people were reading your articles? Well, you have a news editor who tells you what to write, largely. Um, and so you, or you come up with ideas and then you say to the news editor, you know, I'd like to write a story about this. I had a local patch that I was responsible for. So I used to go up to my local patch and find find stories just by walking to the street, walking the streets or talking to people, or you go to a council meeting and you cover whatever is interesting or passes as interesting from their decisions. Um, as for, I think it's very different now because obviously everything's online. So it's very easy to see what people are reading, but then it wasn't really, uh, but you had news editors and editors who had a huge amount of experience and judgment about you know what's old and so I worked with a very successful local newspaper luckily um, with very successful and very very experienced editorial team and so you know you trusted to them. There's one particular story I did which was an investigation into people whose phone bills were enormously large and this was in the days when there was just BT really um, and uh, they'd be getting ridiculously large phone bills and when when they complained to BT, they would come up with all these excuses like you must have rung 999 15 times or, you know, it must have been your dog that dialed. I mean, the really, really silly excuses. So I did this one story because we discovered about three or four cases and the response was amazing. I mean, just we were at the phones rang off the hook because so many people had had the same problem. And then it kind of was a real gauge of actually people are really engaged with the stories that you're writing and they do read and they do respond. Um, and it turned into a very long running investigation where British Telecom basically hated me because I kept ringing them up with all this evidence that they're there. It was there. Um, turned out to be engineers who were making dialing 0845 numbers from phone uh, you know, the phone kind of boxes outside and that that's what the cause of the cause of it was but um yeah so they didn't like me because I was quite tenacious <laughs> from a journalist's perspective that's exactly the type of response you want to get have you yeah. replicated that in future content that you've written Oh, goodness me. Um, I, you know, I don't know. That's the one that stands out. But I think, you know, sometimes you just sometimes you get a big response. Sometimes you don't. It's, you know, you might some write something which is important and you know it's important. But actually, you know, people aren't going to be that interested. But it is talking about something which is, you know, which is valuable and, and needed and needs to be exposed. So. What are your favourite topics to write about, Anne? Oh, goodness me. Well, I don't know, really. Um, I think I, do you know, I don't know. I, lo I, love, I love history. So w when I worked in television and I ended up working in the live events department, and that is a lot of that is very historical because we were working on things like the anniversary of D-Day or VE Day or the Falklands. I worked on the commemorations for the Battle of Trafalgar. I worked on a program about the bicentenary of the ending of the slave trade. All of that was history and that absolutely, you know, got gets me in my gut. I loved it. Um, so that would be absolutely my favourite stuff would be history and writing about history. And I, I think history is really important, but a lot of people obviously don't agree. Um, yeah, so that, that's the thing I enjoyed, really enjoyed in my career.
But having said that, there is nothing also like, you know, when I worked in the consumer unit and we were doing investigations and you'd get somebody who you knew was, you know, really not very nice and you exposed what they were doing and you got that final bit of evidence that would nail it. That was a fantastically satisfying experience and really satisfying that you knew that somebody who was doing wrong by people would be exposed um, and hopefully stopped from doing what they were doing. So that was very satisfying. Tell me more about your investigative journalist work, because I know you worked on some prestigious shows. One well, I... in particular, Brassed Off Britain, <laughs> and UK's worst. Because the reason why I ask is, as an entrepreneur, you only get a number of chances to get it right. And my definition of an entrepreneur is they work for free. They find a way to make it work. So in the early stages, entrepreneurs are finding that way, how to make their business work. And naturally, I think a lot of entrepreneurs get it right, but just as many get it wrong. So what was your lessons when working in this investigative journalist way? Well, I think, you know, the main thing is to do the right thing. I mean, I worked, the department I worked for um, was the consumer unit where people basically complained when they'd had bad, bad service. And you, there was an enormous database of hundreds of thousands of complaints and you could search it and you might search for hairdressers or holiday companies or something. And um, up would come, you know, a list of all the complaints and then you might hone it down by a particular chain of hairdressers or a holiday, holiday camp or something like that. So you could nail it down or a hotel chain. So you could find out, you know, who was getting lots and lots of complaints. And almost always when you talk to the person who complained they said if if they had dealt with my complaint I wouldn't have contacted you if they treated me fairly I wouldn't have contacted you if they'd given me a refund or anything like that you know customer service is is crucial basically and that was the number one complaint that people had that they hadn't been treated fairly and you know I don't think you should just roll over if you if you haven't done anything wrong but if you have and they complained, you're much better to just deal with it and, and um, you know, give people their money back or whatever it might be or a voucher or something, make some kind of restitution because then they'll, people go away happy and they say, oh, well, you know, actually, I, I didn't have a very good haircut at their hairdressers, but he was, they were really good. They gave me a refund. Um, they offered me a new hair, haircut with another, another stylist and they, they responded really well. Go there. They're great rather than you know, they left me with my hair falling out and, you know, ran off with my money and didn't didn't do, you know, did a moonlight flip, which one of the people we investigated did exactly that. Um, she just left lots of people with infections in their head and charged them lots of money and um, did a moonlight flip. When we went to confront her, she'd, she'd moved out the night before of her home. So, um, you know, just do the right thing. Even if it costs you, if it costs you in the short term, in the long term, your reputation will, will you know, uh, will you know benefit basically. Um, yeah, that's basically the number one thing I would say. And I have to say I do agree with you because a bad experience people tell at least five people about a bad experience, 
And not so often people tell people about a great experience. So to, to make something right and give good uh, customer service is really, really key. But from an entrepreneur's perspective, how do they sometimes get it wrong when their product is new and their systems and processes are not in place at that particular time? because they've just started, for example. Well, I think you have to, you have to look, if you're, if you're starting to sell a service, you have to look at the whole, the whole process, don't you? And know that right from the conception to the delivery to your customer or client, everything is going to work smoothly. And if you miss out that last element, the working smoothly for the customer then that's when you're going to have problems because they're the key people basically you can have the best idea the best product the best service but if you don't sell it or if you sell it and then it goes wrong then then and you don't do anything good you don't respond and do anything about that then you're going to you're going to suffer if you just look over the last year and it, say you look at the hot the travel pages of the of the newspapers and the kind of travel complaints questions pages they're absolutely full of people complaining about travel companies who haven't given them a refund or have been you know dragged their feet about giving them a refund or a voucher or whatever it might be over the you know because of the pandemic and they're the ones that in the long run will suffer because they haven't you know because their name will you know people talk as you say people talk and social media now is so powerful it's, it, it, you know, it just takes a moment for somebody to type a complaining tweet and then suddenly it's viral all over the world. Um, so, you know, you have to be really careful about that final customer service element. Couldn't agree more. And for so many people out there who are wanting to start a business and at the same time wanting to start a family, <laughs> with Rough House Media, your company, after you had your son, how did things change for you? Well, my biggest change was I had been full time at the BBC and I left. So I had a complete change of, of life, actually. And it was a brave um, move, right? Well, yes, I guess so. And, you know, it seems very obvious now that I would go and work full time running Rough House. But at the time, there was a few different options of what I might do. And this was the one that we decided was the best one, because we already had a business with a small number of clients. And then, you know, my job was to turn a small number of clients into a big number of clients and, um, and replace my BBC income with income from the company. Um, so it was a big change and it was it was really hard work at the start I mean I I'd never run a business I had come from a a background where in the BBC you have a whole apparatus and you know you've got finance departments and logistics departments and you've got all this kind of HR and you've got everything not that they ever did anything for me but you've got all these kind of apparatus of a big business even though it's not business behind you to support you and then suddenly there was me doing sales and marketing and the you know the accounts and all these things I'd never ever had to do before um so it was a big shock and about a year later I went to work for the um back as a freelance for the BBC on a program for a couple of weeks and it was the program was it was that it was coverage of D-Day in in um, France D-Day commemorations and I was given quite a difficult job to do. 
And I sat down at my desk on the first day and thought, oh my God, I can do this. I'm so relieved I know what to do because I've had a year of not really knowing what I was, you know, trying, but not really knowing what I was doing. Um, so my, probably my advice to somebody starting out would be get as much support as you can and go to all the sources of Startup Britain or whoever it might be, go on loads of courses. Um, and if you can find somebody who's, you know, join a networking group with a, or a peer group where you can talk to people and talk through your, you know, your dilemmas and, and just suck in, inhale advice as much as you can. What was the one skill you think that you were lacking when you first started out on your road to business success? So the thing I had never done was sales. And that was, you know, a real shock to the system, really, to have to make sales. And um, I guess, you know, I, I had a, you know, I was very, very nervous. I would, our core client base are based on, communications and PR departments and PR agencies and I would call them and I would be really nervous and I wouldn't know what to say and I would be um you know I would pop that would all come through and I I didn't I completely disregarded the fact that for 20 years I had been the person they had been trying to pitch stories to and I knew exactly what I was talking about and so I and then one day I just used LinkedIn looked up a couple of people that I was contacting and was like really, why am I scared of these people? I have got so much experience. And it was like a light bulb switch. It was like, okay, I can ring these people up and I'm an equal and I can feel confident because I have achieved an awful lot, um, not running a business, but as a journalist and TV producer. And so why why be nervous of them? And it was that was really a real kind of, just that light, light bulb moment was really important for me actually um, in doing sales. It's really quite interesting, isn't it? I've been in sales all my life. I love sales. And what I really do enjoy with sales is trying to understand what someone is thinking. And I think we're, we're all very similar in terms of what this person is saying to me. We all think, what, what is in it for me? And I think once you understand that, about how to get that message across. It breaks down so many barriers, but I think the biggest barrier is the word sales. <laughs> yeah, you're probably because right. Because this word sales is not taught in university or at school. It's about communication, building relationships and negotiating. And I think this is something we do every single day of our life, whether that's buying a product or selling yourself at an interview. Also, actually, sorry to interrupt, but also, actually, all those skills are things that I absolutely did every day of my career. Persuading somebody to do an interview who really didn't want to do an interview or to, you know, to participate in a programme who probably didn't really want to participate in a programme and, discussing and negotiating with them that you know that's something I did every single day and you know I think I hadn't recognized that and then I did you know I did recognize I obviously do now um you know and so you use that use your life experience really so how do you think go about your sales activities now and because you know there's a there's a great metaphor I use which states everything I touch turns to sold <laughs> Some people think that 
word should be gold, but in my vocabulary, it's sold. And I'm not saying I'm the best psychologist and understanding what people want, but I think there was a shift when you start doing sales, when starting a business. So how was that for you? Well, that's kind of what I just was saying about the, the you know, the having light bulb when I realized how experienced I was and I didn't need to feel nervous. Um, and also, you know, just that using the, the skills and I had developed over my career as a journalist. That's exactly that was what it was that made a difference for me. So, Anne, tell me a little bit more about Rough House Media and how it came apart about, because I know you've got an awful lot of people within your team. How did that start? So we started as a little sideline, literally just doing media training, which is training senior spokespeople to talk to journalists. And that was what we started off doing in 1998. And we did that roughly, basically that for 10 years with a bit of video production. We did some, we've made videos for football clubs, to be honest, football videos, a few of those. Um, but mainly we were doing media training and then you know, after I left the BBC and we started to expand the services we provided. So we provide crisis communication support and we do, do things like smart video training and um, other kinds of communications training, presentation skills and those kind of things. So our range of communication services. Um, and, you know, I think I just we realised that there was a need for other things and we've always been you know, very flexible. So if a client says to us, can you do this? You know, everything is bespoke. So we tailor it. So if somebody comes just literally last month, one of our regular clients came to us and said, we've got somebody who's peering on TV as a presenter's friend, which is basically when you've got a commentator or a presenter and they've got somebody with them through the program, giving advice, their expert advice, can you come and train her to do that? And we've never actually been asked to do that before. But of course, I, you know, my experience working in TV, I absolutely was able to develop a course for her, which gave her the rehearsal time that she needed and worked with. We had two cameras and we kind of did the work, rehearse the walk and talk stuff and all this kind of thing. So, um, you know, we would develop, you know, depending on what clients tell us, we respond to clients says, actually, I need a writing course, but can you include this? You know, we're able, we, our team is big enough that we've got the breadth of experience to be able to to do that. Everybody works for us as a freelancer, so they, they, they a lot of them are still working as writers or in TV or as a presenter or whatever. Um, so we know we've still got current experience, even though I left the BBC 10 years ago. So what other areas of work do you work in within your business? So we, so we, the services we provide are basically things which, um, a PR company or a PR department will outsource. So they are training courses in media interview skills or media relations. I'm doing a media relations course for a client tomorrow. Um, uh, presentation training, um, crisis communications training, um, uh, press release writing, uh, how to make a video with your phone. Those, those are the training courses. Then we do consultancy and that's mainly crisis communication so it it might be somebody calls a client called in February and their company was going through an issue um, 
and this was at the weekend can you help yes absolutely we can help and we spend we spent a day and a half on zoom crafting their response to this particular issue so we'll help with that but also we'll write a crisis plan so if a client hasn't got a crisis communications plan i.e what am i going to do in a crisis we will sit down with them and go through what they need to do to plan their response so if something goes wrong they can go to their plan and go oh yes we've got data breach in our in our plan how are we going to respond to that bush they're ready to go basically so that's those are the key things that we do and we also actually i should mention we also do do video production so we make we make videos for for clients as well and we're just in the midst of a whole big uh just drawing to the end of a whole big uh project for a charity making a series of safeguarding videos we made 18 safeguarding videos last year for them and about different aspects of safeguarding and we're now in the process of getting them translated into different languages which is a challenge but interesting challenge and we're nearly there <laughs> so we're nearly finished you know due to the current covid pandemic which argue, arguably may be the one of the biggest crises that the uk and global have had to contend with for, in, within the last hundred years at least what kind of things do you put into your crisis management plan so first thing you'll do is assess what risks might face your business and there'll be risks that everybody faces like a data breach for example but there might there might be risks there might you know it might be a safeguarding issue you know a member of staff senior staff accused of bullying that kind of thing but you go through all the things that might go wrong and it divide them into categories so it might be internal issues external issues of which pandemic is probably the biggest and most dramatic most dramatic um, example or it might be something in your supply chain so it might be that you have a supplier you're a, a clothing manufacturer, clothing sales company, and you have a ma manufacturer in your supply chain that's in Nepal that uses child labor, for example. So um, uh, you go through all the things that might go wrong, and then you work out which is most likely to be damaging, which is most likely to, um, to happen. And from that matrix, you've got the ones which you really need to focus on to write an action plan for what you're going to do. And so you will basically have generic a sort of generic response for supply chain issue then a specific response for any of the ones which come high in your matrix basically um, so you've you've got your risks then you work out who the key audiences are you need to contact so if you've got risk one if you've got a data breach for example um, who in those circumstances do we need to contact to let know? So you always, if you've got a data breach, you need to let the ICO know, the Information Commissioner's Office, for example. So who are the, and that will, your list of stakeholders will include, you know, your clients, your suppliers, your regulators, the authorities, you know, it might be police, whatever it might be. So you have your list of um list of uh, uh, stakeholders, then how are you going to communicate with those people? Are you going to ring them? Are you going to email them? You know, or do you have a database with all your customers' names on that you can just send out something? So you've, you, know how, you know who you've got to contact in each circumstance, how you're going to contact them. You've got, you get together contact details. You also then need to work out what, who your team are. 
So, you know, you might only have, you might not even have a PR company. You might have a, one PR person, somebody who looks after marketing. You might have a big PR function. But they, if something goes wrong, you're going to have a series of things that you have to do, a series of tasks you have to do. So you need to know who's going to do those tasks. And do you need to pull in additional help? Can the person who writes the website help on the digital side? Can the person who is on the switchboard, can you make sure they're trained so they can deal with calls for journalists? So you work out who your team is going to be to deal with it. So everybody then knows what their role will be should something go wrong. Um, and then you look at the risks and you start to think, right, if this happens, X happens, if there's a data breach, what do we say about it? Because the biggest thing you need to do is be quick and get your response out as soon as possible. So say you've got a data breach is a great example because everybody might have a data breach. So you look at if we have a data breach, this is the response that we will write. And this is how we will write our response a holding, it's called a holding statement, the first thing you say. Um, so you work out from your risks, what are, what, are, what, are the, what are the messages I'm gonna to want to get across? You know, basically we, we care about this, we're on top of this issue you know, and this is what we're doing about it. We're taking action, we'll learn from it, we'll do the right thing by our customers, whatever it might be. Um, and then you craft holding statements around those messages. And then when you've got that, you've then got, you know, holding statements, you know who to contact, you should get together an up-to-date list of your key media, so you know who, who in the media you're gonna contact. You need to then write a plan. So in, the, in your plan goes all the stuff I've just talked about, and contact details of the media and contact details of everybody who might be involved um, and you know what to do in particular circumstances. So you write a plan based on those, those are the key elements that you need to, need to get dealt with. I mean, there's more obviously, but. But what about smaller startup organizations or is it something they don't need to worry as, about as much? So you're a startup, you're a startup tech business and you have a data breach and you've only been going a couple of months, um, but you've lost your potential client's personal details or data. And that goes into whatever the key magazine is in your sector. That's the end of your business. This is not just for big businesses. Everybody needs to have this because a reputational issue can sink, doesn't just sink, you know, BP it's, or Harvey Weinstein's company. It can sink the local restaurant. There's a local, our local paper does, um, uh, I don't know if it's every year, but they do, they, they publish the rate, the health and safety, you know, environmental health ratings of all the restaurants and hotels and all the restaurants and pubs and cafes in the area. You know, you get those cleanliness ratings, one to five as stars. Mm -hmm. They publish those in the paper. Now, if you get a zero rating, if you're one of the ones with zero or one, that's your reputation gone. How are you going to deal with that? You need to think about this right from the start. It should be embedded in your organization. And especially nowadays with social media, social media means that complaints go viral within seconds. And think about after the, um, after the World Cup, when those three footballers were absolutely berated on social media, and it's awful. One of the people who was doing the trolling um, Lots of people looked him up. Somebody looked him up on LinkedIn, discovered he worked for an estate agent. All over that estate agent's timeline was, do you really want this kind of person to be working for you? Is this the kind of staff you employ? What happens if they get in? This person gets a 
black person, you know, as a potential client. And, you know, so their reputation as estate agents were suddenly being dragged through the mud through something that one of their employees did. So you have to, you know, it's not just for the big multinationals, it's for everybody. And that's a very good point, Anne. So as far as social media, how does that take a play in crisis management? And where do you start? So, well, social media is, I mean, it's a, a bad thing because things can, you know, go, as I said, go viral within seconds. So it's it's changed the game for people who, for how you respond to a crisis, because you've got to get your response out before you may even know what's going on. Um, you, you know, you're a factory and you've had some kind of spillage or emission and, you know, you don't know who's who might be injured you don't know you know people might have been hurt and they're being in hospital or there's been an accident and you don't know how things are going to play out but you still it it means that any customers any staff the sisters the brothers of staff the wives of staff the daughters of staff anyone can put on social media god guess what such as i said about that happened at work yesterday you know things get out there very very fast and that you can't control that but you've got to respond. You can't leave it to fester because you've got to respond. If you're not, if you ignore it, it's just going to get worse and worse. You've got to deal with it and try and nip it in the bud as quickly as possible. So you need to craft your response, having your crisis plan, which you've already written. Right, this is um, this is how we're going to respond when we don't know what's going on. Really, this is the good response that we can give to data breach. So let's get out our statement, and it might be something you know fairly anodyne, but it should always be promising action investigation and those kind of things and also show always show that you care um, but get get that out as fast as possible and then you can spend a little bit more time working out what's going on but don't just let social media go wild you know think about having um a, a hashtag creating a hashtag so people come to you as a source of information journalists use social media as a source as well so they're looking for case studies or human interest or victims of a particular situation, they will be touring social media. So you need to kind of, you know, get on their radar on social media by, by kind of posting as quickly as possible so they can see that X has said, this has happened in your business and it hasn't really happened. And you're saying, no, that's false because, and then you're linking to a fuller statement somewhere, somewhere on your website and you've got something on your website. You might need to you know, create landing pages with statements and then, you know, with your statement or with the full facts or with an FAQ about what's going on and then get digital marketing to, to promote that on Google ads. So that goes up the, goes up the um, you know, Google rankings so that people, when they, when they Google you, that's what they see. They see your response. Um, but you've got to act fast. And good thing about social media is that it's free and it's out there. So if you and so everybody can see it there's no filter so in the past say 20 years ago before twitter and facebook existed if you wanted to get your side of the story out there you would just have to wait for a journalist to say yes i'm going to publish your statement and put it into the next edition of the newspaper so you're in the hands of a journalist or you were in the hands of a journalist whether they decided to put your side of the story or whether they just picked bits of it or whether they didn't think it was important enough to have a rebuttal. So you're really, you know, you had quite little power, but now because of social media, you can get your response out and you don't have to wait. You know, you can get your side out and you can, you know, people can find it, as I said, if you use the hashtags, they can find it and 
you're not reliant on the journalist to, to get your side of the story out. So it's, you know, it has its, has its advantages. In hindsight, 18 months down the line, how would, you, how would you have changed your plan around the COVID pandemic? You know, I think we were very lucky, actually, because we had most of what we do is training courses. We had been thinking about doing them, offering them virtually on, you know, on a virtual platform for some time and never quite got around to it. But because we've been thinking about it and because it was possible for us to do it, we actually were able to change our business model and the way we delivered our services really quite fast. Um, so we were, we, you know, we were very lucky we didn't suffer. But I'm, you know, I know lots of businesses have had a really tough time. And I think that's, you know, if you now, when we do crisis planning, we will always have pandemic, complete closure of your business down on, down as one of the risks and think, how do you respond to that? Um, and that's not necessarily the comm side, that's the emergency business continuity side that you've got to start. You've got to be thinking about it, obviously. For our listeners that are listening to the podcast today, Anne, how can they hear more about you and Rough House Media? So well, obviously they can contact us direct and our, our, our website address is roughhousemedia.co.uk and uh, our, you know, our, all our contact details are on there. We're on social media, we're on Twitter as Facebook01. I'm on LinkedIn. If people want to link with me on LinkedIn, I'm on LinkedIn. So, you know, we welcome conversations with everybody. We have a conversation, see whether we can help. And what would be your very last tip for our listeners? Something to do when starting out in business? When starting out in business. Do you know, I think something I've not talked about at all, but one thing that really worked for us was finding a niche. So we have a particular sector that we work with or sectors, two, two main sectors that we work with everybody from small businesses to multinationals, but we work a lot with not-for-profit charities and membership bodies. And I think because if you can say, right, this is where we where we focus in, this is where we focus um, our energies, once you once you start to work with two or three of the same kind of organization or business, business or client, everybody else feels much more comfortable going to you. So we, you know, if somebody, you know, if a small business comes to us, although I say we concentrate on, on, on not-for-profits and professional organisations, um, if a small business comes to us and say, well, we worked with this one and this one and this one and this one and this one, and they all, you know, they can all give us, um, it, you know, testimonials or recommendations because we've worked with them all and they're all happy. So if you can, if you can carve out a niche and just focus on that, it really, really kind of help works well. And that brings our podcast to a nice conclusion today. Thank you so much for your time, Anne, and very best wishes. Today's show has been sponsored by www.teameasycrane.co.uk. We help you build your business and grow recurring profits. Thank you so much for listening, and don't forget to hit the subscribe button.